0: Apex campus. By the way, I was there just the other day and and I actually they have a gym there, workout gym, and I I just finished working out, and one of the ladies that works there, she walked up to me, she says, Pastor Mike, I don't understand how we do it. And I'm like, "Um, help me out. How we do what. And she said, Well, my husband and I were talking, We, we don't understand how hope does what it does. She said, We just opened this brand new Apex facility. A few weeks ago, you said we need money to send down to Port au Prince for hurricane relief. We raised $136,000 and sent it down there. She said last week you gave us $100,000 in cash to go out and to multiply, to invest it, and to figure out what is a need in the community maybe a family, maybe a, maybe a charity, but what is the need in the community that you could address with that money? And we're hoping to multiply it from a thousand to a million dollars to go back into our community. She said, how in the world is it that we're possible, Is possible for us to do what we do? And the answer to that may surprise you. It has nothing to do with the fact that we do live in one of the wealthiest areas in the world. It really isn't based on how the stock market's doing or the fact that there's a strong uh, job market in, in, in the uh, triangle. As strange as it may sound, the level to which we're able to be involved and impact our community and the world is directly related to the level of contentment in your life. And we're going to see that this weekend. By the way, uh, based on this week's past events, uh, some of you may not be as content as, as you were last week. How many of you, just, just to be honest, how, how many of you were shocked by this week's event? Just raise your hand. Well, regardless of what side, you were kind of surprised, kind of shocked. See, me too. But I'm excited about the way it turned out because I had no idea that Duke was going to be able to beat Carolina. I, you know, I, I just went in, into it. Oh, you guys thought I was talking about something else, huh? Now, there's a lot of, a lot of discontentment in our country right now. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the news, Right? And uh, so let me just say this, and, and it's interesting, as I watched the news, I told Laura, I said about, about 99% it looks like are millennials, it's you guys over there that are out protesting and stuff, and uh, so let me just share this, I, I'm 60 years old, I've seen a lot of presidents come and go, and I, 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 I've been through a lot of elections, and I've been on the winning side of some of what I voted, I've been on the losing side of some, and, and there's been days I've gotten up after the election, I thought, well, this is it, this is the end of the world, it's, we're never going to get through this, but we're still here. You know why? We either believe that God puts in authority over us the people that he chooses, or he doesn't. So you either trust God that he has a plan, or you don't trust God. So I would really, really encourage you, pray. That's what you can do. You can pray for our country. You can pray for all of our leaders at every level. And let's, let's just trust that God has a plan for all of us. And I know that he does, so I don't really worry about that kind of stuff. Although, it is interesting to see all the millennials out there uh, um, protesting in fact i told laura i said you know what people keep saying hey mike you ought to run for president maybe maybe i will run for president because i told her i said i could stop those protesting right now she said how i said you go out there you give every one of them a participation trophy and they'll go home and think they won something and that'll that will be the end that'll be the end they look mom I, i'm best protester we'll put it on you put it up there on the shelf honey well, that year you didn't win any soccer games, but you got a trophy, you know. And so, but anyway, I love you guys. You're our future. But anyway, uh, you never know what you're going to get at 1115. I'm tired by now, four times in, you know, and uh, we're not a very content people, though. And, uh, but when I think about contentment, I don't know that anybody modeled this trait better than the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you're familiar with his life, you know that he never allowed circumstances to uh, control his attitude, not death, not prison, not change, not even prosperity. In fact, and regardless of what Paul was going through, Paul's like, yeah, I can I can figure out how to be content. Doesn't really matter. In fact, this is what he said when he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter four verse eleven. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse twelve. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well fed, hungry, whether living in plenty in want. By the way, just so you know, when Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't just being a drama queen. I mean, just read the New Testament. Paul's life was pretty much a roller coaster. He knew what it was like to go from prosperity to nothing, back to prosperity again, but it didn't change him. He didn't just assume that God had forgotten him when he was sleeping on the street with a growling stomach, nor did he forget the role that God was playing in his life if he was living in a nice home with three meals a day to enjoy. Paul says, it doesn't really matter where I am. It doesn't matter the fact that Nero's my emperor right now that I have to respect because God put him in authority there. It doesn't really matter. I have found a way to be content. Now, here's my big question. Have you discovered out how to be con- discovered yet how to be content regardless of what's going on in your life? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Mike, well, it depends on what you mean by being content. It depends on what you mean by contentment. Well, let me just say this. Contentment basically means that you're happy with what you have, And you're happy with where you are in life. In fact, here's a good test. If you remained exactly where you are for the rest of your life, okay? Your finances never change. Your career never changes. The president that just got elected or the next one never changes. Your relationships never change. If none of that ever changed, could you figure out how to be content? Now, let's just be honest. Part of the problem is we live in a culture where we're reminded every day of what we don't have. We're reminded every day of what we're missing. We're constantly reminded of how outdated our technology is. So, you go out and buy the new iPhone 137, and what happens two weeks later? There's an iPhone 138, and like, I can't believe I have to use this piece of junk. I need that new iPhone, right? You feel like your wardrobe's outdated. You feel like your car's outdated. And because of that, we kind of have this tendency to be discontent. And the problem with discontentment is that it's an appetite that's never fully satisfied. So what do you do with that appetite? Because, see, we know, we know that satisfying an appetite doesn't make it go away. I mean, have you ever been starving at about 11 o'clock and finally at noon you go to a Chinese restaurant and you just chow down at the buffet, right? By 1 o'clock you're hungry again. See, that's just, that's just the way life is. In the same way, you will never get enough stuff. You will never amass enough stuff in this life where you will be finally content and you will not want any more stuff. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. What happens to an appetite when you feed it? It grows. And that's why, I see, the more and more stuff you have, the more and more stuff you want. See, when I was a kid, I didn't want much because we didn't have anything. I mean, we were pitiful growing up, right? But I do remember, I do remember as a child, our little 900-square-foot house in Durham that six of us lived in with one bathroom, right? Six of us, two sisters. I had a brother. We all shared rooms. I remember at about 12 or 13 in my little twin bed in the bedroom I shared with my brother, I remember laying there one day thinking, you know what? I'm going to surprise everybody. One day, I'm going to amount to something. You ever had that thought? And I thought, when I do, 12 or 13, I'm getting me a Corvette. Because in my mind, that was the pinnacle. If you had a Corvette, you were living, right? And sure enough, sure enough, I got old, and I kept bugging Laura about getting a Harley. And one day, she snapped, and she said, you're not getting a Harley. You've always wanted a Corvette? Get one. Bam. So I I went and got one, right? (laughs) Because... It's mutual submission, mutual submission, right? And, uh, and I got an old Corvette, red Corvette, you know, one light would go up, one when I used to call it Mr. Winky, and, and the seats were ripped, and it had a glass top that every time it rained or I went through a car wash, I just got soaked. I mean, it just had leaks in it everywhere. Love that car. I didn't care. I've had, I loved that car until one day, it was a Sunday afternoon, I can still remember, I was driving down 64 in Apex, where the Auto Mall is, and I saw a sign that said Hendrick Chevrolet was having a used car sale, and somehow, I didn't mean for it to, my car went into that lot. I didn't plan it. It's a weird thing. It was a God thing. And I went in there, and there was a used silver Corvette, a little bit newer than mine, six speed, more power, and I'm like, I gotta have it. God wants me to have this, Right? Right now, here's the problem. Here's the problem with having Corvettes. By the time you can afford a Corvette, you can't get in and out of it. I say that's that's the problem with it. Plus, you look like a pervert. I mean, a guy my age right, he just looked like you know you you know trolling for kids or something when you're when you So I went back to a pickup truck, right? But my point is this. My point is this. When we live that way, like it's not quite enough. I thought it was enough, but a month later, it's not quite enough. See, it short circuits our ability to be content. So what do we do about it? How do we curve our appetite for more and more and more? How do, we, how do we get a handle on our lack of contentment? Well, if you have your Bibles this weekend, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're gonna get some solutions, some answers to this challenge that we all live with in America. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, don't even bother. I'll, I'll be finished by the time you find it, okay? But we are gonna put the verses up on the screen. 1 Timothy, by the way, was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young man whose name was Timothy. And, and, And Paul was in a mentoring relationship with Timothy. He was preparing him for the ministry. And in this letter, Paul tells Timothy how to be content. This is what's key. How to be content when you've been blessed with a lot and you have the ability to get a lot more. He begins in verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. And nobody's going to argue with that. We all know that, see? But that doesn't stop us from living our lives as if somehow our life depends on what we have, what we own, what we can amass, what we can possess in this life. And so Paul says, listen, you didn't bring anything into this world. You're not leaving with anything either. So it ought to be pretty easy to be content with very little, because you started out with nothing. And anything you get is more than you started with. So Paul says that contentment should be pretty easy for us to find. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now understand, this is the first century where, you know, because of poverty and because of hardships, many people in the first century where Paul is writing, they wondered if they were going to get one meal a day. On top of that, they pretty much, their wardrobe consisted of what they were wearing. They typically would wear an outfit, and when it would wear out, they would get a new outfit. So Paul says, hey, you got clothes. You got something to wear. You got something to eat. You should be content, to which we're all tempted to say, yeah, well, that may have worked in the first century, but that's not really working for me, right? But if we're honest, when we hear that, there's something inside of us that tells us there's probably some truth. There's probably some wisdom to that philosophy. I mean, we probably should be content if we have enough to eat today. We probably should be content if we have clothes to wear today. That probably should be enough. Anything more than that is just God blessing us. It's just icing on the cake. But there's something inside of all of us, especially Americans, we're not satisfied with that. So these next few verses are for us. Those who want to get rich. It actually could be translated into Greek, people who want to live richly. You want to live a rich lifestyle. Those who want to get rich. Now let me just say, I've said this before. If you're sitting here today... Odds are, 99% of us, we're already rich. We're already rich. In fact, I'll just give you the statistics to prove it. Uh, Medium household incomes. Let me just throw them out to you. Cary, $91,400. Apex, $89,400. These are household incomes. Holly Springs, $89,000. This is the average, $187. Morrisville, $78,800. Raleigh as a whole... It's around $53,700. Wake County, altogether, $65,900. That's interesting because the entire U.S. average household income is only $51,900. So we're significantly above the rest of the U.S., but this is what's interesting. Guess what the average household income is worldwide? $9,733. In fact, if you do the statistics, you'll find out that if you have a household income of $32,400 a year, you're in the 1% of the richest people on the planet. $32,400 a year. So Paul says, those of us who want to get rich, verse 9, or live richly, he says, beware, you fall into the temptation, into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And I don't think I need to belabor this point because we all know people who have suffered, who have ruined their life because of the pursuit of money. Maybe it's because they had so much that they were able to borrow. They had such a great credit score, they were were able to borrow more than was wise. Maybe it's because they lived on 110% of their income, and because of that, they created all this debt that they had to carry. Maybe it was because no matter what they had, it was never, ever going to be enough. So Paul says, you just need to understand, when you have more than you need, there are temptations you can fall prey to that you would not fall prey to if you didn't have more than you needed. And so he says, basically, if your goal in life is to get rich, if your goal in life is to live richly, beware, watch out. You're going to need some boundaries that will keep you away from the pitfalls that only people who have a lot can experience. Let's say that there's any... Anything wrong with having it, he says, you just got to be careful, verse 10, for the love of money, right? We've all heard this, the love of money is the root of all evil. But it's interesting, the Greek, again, uh, the original language of the New Testament, literally it says this, prioritizing the pursuit of money over other things. That's what that phrase means in the Greek. In other words, prioritizing the pursuit of money over your morals, over your ethics, over your values. Prioritizing the pursuit of money over your family, of your family. When you do that, verse 10 tells us, for the love of money or the pursuit of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And a lot of you listening right now, watching online, you would agree with that statement. Some of you would have to admit, if you were honest, the pursuit of money, that's what destroyed our family. That's what destroyed our home. And maybe it was because one or both spouses were consumed by their work and because you both work You were able to get a lot, and you had so much, but there was this constant pursuit of more and more and more, and then all of a sudden, everything was out of whack, and your values were distorted. I personally know people who have gone to jail because they put the pursuit of money over other things. I mean, they had more money than they could ever need, ever spend, but you know what? It wasn't enough, so they they found out illegal ways to get more, and they ended up going to jail, to prison because of it, so... So that's why Paul says the pursuit of money, just just so you know, can lead to all kinds of evil. Verse 10, some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I know people who've done that. You do too. In fact, you may be here after having wandered away from your relationship with God to pursue wealth, and you're back. And maybe you're back because God took it all away just to bring you back. Or maybe you finally hit a wall and you realize, wow, this pursuit of wealth, this is going nowhere fast. But I'm guessing, having gone through what you've gone through, I met a guy one time, and he says, I've made millions of dollars and lost every penny of it seven times. Well, he understands the grief that Paul's talking about. Are we having fun yet? Are we? You're like, hey, let's do that hugging thing we did last week. That was a lot more fun. We can't do that because I can see right now some of you are hugging your purse, you're hugging your wallets because you think I'm trying to get it. Not trying to. Just relax. Put it back under your seat. It's going to be okay. Because now Paul gives us the practical side of this. Verse 11. You, but you, man of God. Now, who's he writing it to? Timothy. So he basically says, Timothy, flee from all of this. Get away from this stuff. But he doesn't just say flee from all of this. He says you got to do something in his place and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And maybe, maybe it's not obvious to you yet, but you're going to see it in a second. In this verse, Paul gives us the structure. Paul gives us the framework as to how to deal with our lack of contentment. And he basically says this, if you have more than you need, and that's most of us, if you have more than you ever imagined you would have, and and that's a lot of us, Paul says if you find yourself in that situation, the temptation will be to pursue all the things that you can provide with yourself, with all the extra that you have, and the temptation will be to allow the pursuit of money to begin to impact all of your decisions in life. And so Paul says this. If you're one of those people who have more than they need, and pretty much by American standard, that's us, you've got to make a conscious decision to flee. You've got to make a conscious decision to turn from the pursuit of wealth and you've got to turn, you've got to pursue something else. In other words, Paul is saying, we have to make an intentional decision to rechannel our desire for more and more stuff and we have to take all of that emotion that we were putting in that pursuit and all of that desire and we have to, as Christians, we have to begin to pursue something altogether different. And Paul says that is the only way to keep from falling into this trap of not being content. We have to flee one thing, we have to pursue something, Something else. We have to redirect our time, redirect our money, redirect our energy towards something entirely different. Well, what is it? Well, he gives us some specifics on how to do this beginning in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world, us, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Now, here's a key phrase who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, that's cool because you know what that tells us? This is not a guilt trip message. Paul says, if you are rich by this world standard, what you have, enjoy. God gave it to you to enjoy. So you should enjoy your wealth. I mean, if God has blessed you with a beach house, enjoy it. If you get to be the member at a country club, enjoy it. If you have a mountain vacation home, enjoy it. If you get to drive nice cars and live in a nice house, enjoy it. You know what the big thing is in my neighborhood? Families have golf carts just to ride around the neighborhood, just to go to the pool, to take their kid to the bus stop. Golf carts, right? In fact, we, the, we have this little thing called Next Door or something, Next Door Neighbor, some kind of little kind of Facebook thing for the neighborhood. This is no lie. And if you're here, I apologize ahead of time if this is you. But anyway, somebody went on there and said, we just moved here from the Northeast, Does anyone have a golf cart that I could borrow for Halloween? Because if I can't borrow a golf cart, we had to sell ours before we moved down here. This will be the first year that my kids had to experience Halloween without a golf cart. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That is a first world problem right there, people. Right? But if you got it, enjoy it. That's what this verse says. (laughs) Enjoy being rich in this present world. But Paul says to Timothy, warn them not to make the pursuit of stuff their chief pursuit. That is so key. It's okay to have a lot of stuff. Don't make that your chief pursuit. And then he gets more specific in verse 8. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds. Now let me tell you what that means. That means that we're to use our extra time we're to use our extra money to intentionally and purposefully help other people. In other words, when someone looks at your life, instead of you know just being amazed by what you have, when they look at your life, they should be amazed by what you've done with what you have. Nothing wrong with having it, but what have you done with it? Verse 18: Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous. And willing to share. Verse 19, in this way, in other words, as Christians, if we choose to live this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. We've heard this before. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroys and where the thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's what Paul's saying back in verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they, now this is so key, so that they they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, so we have a phrase around here. You're living the life. Men, they're living the life. They're living the dream. Paul says, be careful. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is such an incredible word picture for the culture we live in. Paul says, for those of you who have a lot, who have more than you need, that's most of us. He says, the temptation for you is going to be to take hold of a life, to try to grab onto this life that isn't really life. In other words, the temptation is to take hold of a life that's totally focused on pursuing more and bigger and better and shinier and newer. Yet at the end of the day, you realize, wow, this isn't life. This is totally unfulfilling in the long haul. There's no life. There's no dissatisfaction in this pursuit of more and more and more. And so Paul says to Timothy... Tell the rich people to do good. Tell them to be rich in good deeds. Tell them to be generous with what God has given them. Tell them to be willing to share. And if they will leverage their stuff this way, they will experience what it means to truly live. And as a bonus, they'll avoid the pitfalls that go along with being wealthy. But see, if that's going to happen, we've got to flee the pursuit Of one way of handling our wealth. And we have to intentionally pursue another way of handling our wealth. And this is what Paul is getting to. All of that to say this Paul says, generosity is what bridles our discontentment, generosity is what curves our appetite for more. In other words, we can't just get up one day and decide, you know what, I'm gonna be content. We can't pretend we don't want things, we can't just avoid them all forever. We can't just avoid all the sales ad and the commercials forever. But what we can do is we can learn to manage our appetite. Now, this is what the New Testament teaches. It teaches that planned and strategic generosity is what curves our appetite of greed. It's what puts a bridle on our discontentment. In other words, it, it keeps us from allowing our discontentment to drive us in all kinds of unhealthy Directions. And this is why here at Hope Community Church, if you're new to the church, we teach the biblical principle of priority percentage giving. Priority percentage giving simply says this I'm going to give a percentage of my income, and we believe the Bible teaches 10%. I'm going to give it away before I spend it on myself. In other words, this is based on the principle of first roots. It's all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament. When you get paid, when you made a harvest, you gave the first back to God. That's the principle here. And the key, the the beauty of this is when you give first, you learn to live within your means. I mean, when Laura and I... When we were first married and we bought our first house and literally barred mattresses from her parents to sleep on the floor for a year because we couldn't even afford to buy a bed. I mean, we were living that way and we we knew we were supposed to be tithing and we weren't tithing. And Lenny Moen, who was my mentor, he said, well, I can tell you how to tithe really easily. I said, what's that? He says, give it first. And you'll learn, you'll figure out how to live on the rest. And that is a principle that we started 38 years ago and it still works to this day. But see, Because what happens is that kind of giving curves our appetite for more and it bridles our discontentment now let me just tell you what the challenge is when you really think about it we live in a culture as i said before where we are constantly reminded of what we do not have but this is what's interesting we have to go out of our way to discover what other people don't have i mean let's be honest we can live in this area the triangle. And if we're careful, never be aware of anybody else's need. You know why? Nobody's knocking on our door asking for money. Nobody's knocking on our door asking for food. Nobody's sleeping on the sidewalk out in front of our house. In fact, my guess is most of us, we don't even have a relationship with a genuinely poor person. That is just the culture. That is the world we live in. And to be honest, most of us would prefer to keep it that way. Because if we don't see it, guess what? We can pretend it doesn't exist. So how do we counteract that? Well, the only way I know is to intentionally make some decisions that will bring us into an awareness of what other people need. That is why I will be forever grateful for the opportunity that God has given me to visit some third world countries. I remember the first time I went to the Central African Republic where the household average income for the year is $240. Can you imagine trying to live off of $20 a month? The capital of Bangui, they still live in mud huts. They still go to the creek to get their water. They still cook on a fire out in front. This is the capital city. They spend 99% of their time every day wondering, will we get one meal today? Or to Uganda, where the median age in that country is 15. Half the population of Uganda is under the age of 15. Think about that. Fifteen because of civil war, because of the AIDS epidemic, many of them orphans. Or go down to Haiti where in Port-au-Prince you got three, three and a half million people living on a rock that was originally planned for about 100,000 people to live. And you see the poverty. I'm telling you, I'm so thankful that God's allowed me to do that because see, when you're involved in something like that, your mind is immediately taken from what you don't have and what you don't need to what they don't have but they actually need. It just happens automatically. So we got to figure out a way to become aware because, like I said, where we live, it kind of forces us to do it artificially. We got to figure it out how to be aware of the needs around us. And there's ways you can do that. You're going to have to do some homework. I know that Laura supports and, and sponsors seven orphans between Uganda, Central African Republic, and Haiti. And for like each orphan, we send away 35, 40 bucks a month, depending the organization we're going through. And it guarantees them some food and it guarantees them some schooling and some clothing and some medical care, it, it, you know, and, and we get letters from them and we get to find out how they're doing. In fact, when I've been visiting a Central African Republic and, and in Haiti, I've actually had a chance to hang out with, with, the, with, the, with the child that we're sponsoring. And maybe you gotta do that. Maybe you just gotta put it right there in the refrigerator. Maybe as a family, you pray for them every day, but it just reminds you that there are actually people with needs that need to be met, that need to be addressed. Maybe you take your family on a mission trip. And you can go to our website, The Global Hope. We have mission trips designed just for families, for parents and children. So your kids can see there's more to life than just what they want. Maybe the second Saturday of each month. You don't have to go to Haiti or Uganda. You can go to South East Raleigh with our Ship of Zion campus. Because the second Saturday of every month, we, we go down there and we minister to the communities or to meet the needs of the community. But here's the thing. We have got to figure out a way to become aware of the needs around us. You know what? This makes me sick about politics sometimes. And I didn't say this in any other message, but I'm going off script. We sit back and want idiot politicians to address the needs of our world when as Christians we have the resources, we have the remains, but we refuse to get off our rear ends and just be light on a hill not the government's problem. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where God told the government to take care of that stuff. He says, man, somebody needs water. Somebody needs food. Somebody's in jail. Visit them. Widows and orphans, pure and undefiled religion, right? That's for us people. But we're not aware of the needs. We have got to figure out a way to become aware of the needs around us because awareness drives generosity. And as your generosity grows, guess what happens? your contentment grows. Your contentment grows. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, Laura and, I, Laura and I were on our way to Uganda and I was supposed to be speaking there at the Watoto Church. And we got as far as London and when we were checking in to get on the plane, they said, uh, Mr. Lee, you can't go. And I'm why not? And they said, you only have four months left on your passport. And I said, well, I can promise you, I am not spending more than four months in Uganda. We're good. And they said, no, no, to travel there, their rules, their laws, you gotta have six months left on your passport. I called the embassy. I did everything I could. Could not make it work. They said you're not going to go. So Laura and I are standing in Heathrow Airport, and I said, "What do you want to do?" She says, "I don't know. What do you want to do?" I said, "Well, I'm not preaching this weekend, you know. I can be like a real person. Let's do something fun, you know." So we decided we were going to fly back to JFK, and we were going to spend a couple of days in New York. It's Valentine's. I said, "Let's do this." Let's go to New York. We'll go to some Broadway shows, and we'll go to a really cool dinner, and we'll just have a romantic time in New York. So we land in New York, and it's like, it's cold. It is so cold. It's in February. And we get a hotel, and the next day's Valentine, and we get up. And and if you've ever been to New York and try to go see a Broadway show, especially the last minute, you know how much it costs. And and just eating any meal in New York, but a nice romantic dinner, you know how much it costs. But we're going to do it. We're so excited. We're going to go get some tickets. And it's like 2 degrees that morning. And we bundle up, and we're walking somewhere to get breakfast. And everywhere we walk, homeless people, sleeping in doorways, leaning up against buildings. One man had a newspaper over him. Another one had two umbrellas that were open, and he was laying under them between the umbrellas in the building, just trying to keep the elements off of himself. I actually, I tried to speak to him. He didn't respond. I thought he was dead. I really didn't think he was dead. And Laura and I were so blown away that in this two-degree weather, there were people sleeping on the streets of New York City, that we went and got a bunch of cash and instead of going to a Broadway musical, we went around that morning giving out cash to every homeless person we could find. 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. I don't know what you're gonna do. I don't know what the answer is. I can't solve all your problems. Get out of the cold today. Go to the movie theater. Just watch movies all day long. Go get some food, whatever it is. Here's some money. You say, well, they probably did drugs. That's not my problem. That's not my problem. I just know what God laid on our heart to do, right? And my point is this. It's not, oh, you're so wonderful. That's not my point. My point is, if you're not aware of the need You won't respond to the need. And this little world we live in, it's so easy not to be aware of the need. So here's my question I'm going to leave you with. What are you going to do to broaden your discontentment? I'm telling you, it's in all of us. What are you going to do to become more aware of what others don't have, but they actually need? What are you going to do to make sure that your kids don't grow up thinking it's all about what they don't have? And it's all about them. I'm telling you, generosity bridles our discontentment. It curves our appetite for more. And let me just say this. If you choose to live this way, which is a biblical lifestyle, if you choose to live this way, at the end of the day, you'll be better off financially because you'll probably finally be living within your means. Somebody else will be better off financially. The kingdom of God will be better off financially. And our church will be more fully funded to do what it is that God has called us to do as we reach the triangle and change the world, I'm telling you, everybody wins. And so I, without any apology whatsoever, I'm gonna challenge you to consider, consider giving generously to Hope Community Church. I think it is a phenomenal kingdom investment. And I would, I would encourage you to develop into your life the discipline of priority percentage giving. I think it should be 10%. I'll, I'm not just telling you this To impress you, Laura and I give 20%. And I only tell you that because I shouldn't ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do. But we give 20%. We're in that season of life. There are people here who give more than that because they believe what God is doing through Hope Community Church. You say, Mike, there is no way. You should see our finances. There's no way we could give 10%. Well, first of all, we have a lot of classes here. We have have classes here that have helped people pay off millions and millions and millions of dollars of debt. Dumb debt. We call it stupid debt. Maybe you need to take one of those classes. Maybe you need to learn, take one of our budgeting classes. But I would encourage you to step out on faith and start somewhere. Say 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever it is. God, I'm giving it right off the top, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. It's that principle of first fruit. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. To do that, you're going to have to say no to some things. There's a lot Laura and I could do with that extra 20%. But you know what? We've got a darn good life. You're gonna have to say no. You're gonna have to say no to your children about some things. By the way, which may be good. Because I live in a neighborhood where every family has three kids, a you know, a golden lab and a golf cart, right? I mean it's just really weird. It's like Stepford neighborhood, right? And when I hang out and talk to these parents, I'm just talking to the young parents now, you are raising a generation of stressed out, neurotic children. Because you, for some reason, are trying to live vicariously through them. In fact, I am convinced, I'm convinced totally, because I listened on the conversations, you're not half as concerned about your children as you are what other parents might think if you don't do everything your children want want to do. And maybe the best thing you could do for your families, your kids would say, you can pick two or three things you're going to do, but you're not doing seven. We're not doing everything. Because you know what? There's a portion of our income that's going to be used for people who are actually in need. That'll get me some emails, but I don't care. I don't care. I'd rather you deal with it than me have to counsel them when they're 18 or 19 and think the world revolves around them. So anyway, you just deal with it. But anyway, three reasons I think you should give to hope. Here's the first one. It makes a difference in the lives of people who walk in these doors every weekend. I call this preventative giving. It's not as exciting It's not as sexy as hurricanes and earthquakes and typhoons, right? Emotional giving. But see, every time you give and we keep the lights on and we can pay a staff and we can do all of these things, it's preventative. See, when you give, because we can have student ministries and programs, see, you have no idea how many girls, because they're discipled here and they grow in their relationship with Christ, will never get pregnant and have to have an abortion. You don't know that. You don't know how many kids won't end up on drugs because here... They're taught to walk a lifestyle obedient to Jesus Christ. You don't know how many young couples, because of the pastors we're able to pay, that do premarital counseling for all of our young marriages. How many young marriages will never get divorced because they've got a strong foundation? I ran into a couple at our Morrisville campus. They said, you don't know us, but we see you every week. That was at the Miracle League fundraiser the other night. And they said, we got to tell you our story. Our daughter was a cutter. And her life was in danger. And we started coming to hope. And the student ministry staff loved her, poured into her. She accepted Christ as her savior. They said, we just baptized her. She stopped cutting. It has totally changed the dynamics. See, that's, that's just by you giving. But I'll tell you something that's a little closer to home. You guys heard about the story. In Fuquay, the double murder. This past Friday night were domestic violence. A husband killed his wife and then killed himself. I was at home Saturday morning and I, I, I received word There's a family in our church at our Apex campus who had invited the wife to church last week and she attended Hope for the very first time last week at our Apex campus. And as I was standing in my living room or in kitchen with Laura and I was receiving this news, I just got teary because this is what I thought. Somebody hugged her. And remember what I said? People sitting around you, people you just hugged, you have no idea what's going on beneath the surface of their life. We have no idea the impact that that had on her life this last week of her life. But my point is this. Every week these doors are open. We have the opportunity to impact lives. Here's the second reason I think you should give here. Next year, we're going to give over $2 million outside the doors of hope to our local and global community. Do you know it costs us $250,000 a year just to have a campus in Port-au-Prince? You say, Mike, is that really worth it? Well, I went down there and spoke on its second anniversary, second anniversary, two years. They had over 2,400 people. That Saturday before, I helped baptize 116 brand new believers. When I spoke on Sunday, another 53 people accepted Christ as their Savior. They're all going to be our brothers and sisters that we hang out with in heaven in the kingdom of God. You tell me. I think that's worth it. I think that's worth it. But here's the third and maybe best reason to give this way. You'll never have to hear me talk about this again. Because think about this. I can do the math. You look at the families that we have here at Hope. You look at what the average household income is. Look at 10%. If we just tithe, forget 15, 20, if we just tie, we would have the money. We would never have to ask for money again. Oh, there's a hurricane in Haiti. Send them a couple hundred thousand dollars. There's a flood down in Kinston. Donna, where are you? Donna, wave at us. Donna's from the church down in Kinston. She just came up to worship with us this week. Send them a couple hundred thousand dollars. They need it more than we do. Oh, that typhoon. Oh, look what's going on in downtown Raleigh. Just send it to them. We would just send them. We'd be looking for ways to invest in the kingdom of God. And we'd never have to ask you again. So let me just close by saying this. If, if Hope Community Church is impacting your life, if you believe in what we're doing, give. Invest in what God is doing here. Now, if you don't, if it hasn't impacted your life and you don't believe in what we're doing here, I would encourage you, go somewhere else. Find another church that is gonna impact your life that you do believe in, because see, the one that's missing out on this equation is you. You wanna be a part of what God is doing. But let's become people of generosity. See, we're never more like God than when we give. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. He gave his only begotten son. So let's develop those kinds of hearts of generosity So that God can actually use us to change the world. How cool would that be? How cool would that be? Father, thank you for the time we've had together. Give us the courage to be obedient. And that's all I need to say. In your name we pray. Amen.